Listen in Fridays to the new feature Times Like This on Aro City Radio in partnership with Luxembourg Times. Yannick from Luxembourg Times joins us. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, uh, so uh, really only one place to start this week, and that is with the floods that uh, affect... I mean, we severe heavy rain for a couple of days, and then it all just, well, took over the last couple of... Uh, 24 hours, 36 hours. Yeah, yeah, it was a very calamitous event. Well, it's still ongoing, and mm-hmm. um, I don't think the country has ever seen something like that. I mean, there were there were floods in '96 and and um, a few de- decades earlier as well. But um, from what I've read and heard um, from people and, and seen as well, it seems that it was uh, um, truly torrential in places, and uh, new records were set, and and the destruction levels were um, also are extremely high in a lot of places as well. So um, perhaps compared to parts in Belgium or, or Germany, we got off a bit lightly still, but still this is a, like a disastrous event for a lot of people. It's, it's ruined so many houses and businesses and, um, and it's, it's caused so much damage in the country. So yeah. And people forced from their homes in Rospor, Viandin, Eschernach, or so people being evacuated. Yeah, people were evacuated. I think they couldn't force them to leave, but um, a lot of people really didn't have much of a choice anymore. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, a friend of mine, he lives in the small village of Born in the um, in the east of the country next mm-hmm. to the Zao River, and his first uh, floor was completely flooded almost, like his furniture was just like floating around, and um, he had to be evacuated by boat. So... Uh, and then he was brought to a shelter in the in the, in the council of of, of Rosbos. So, yeah, the, these are scenes we haven't really seen in Luxembourg in in, in the recent recent decades. Absolutely. And then you know, across the border in Germany and Belgium, as you said, very very severely affected with people dying and homes being destroyed. Yeah. Here, at least in Luxembourg, um, as far as I know, no one has died yet, and I haven't heard too much about injuries yet either. So, um, hopefully, it will stay that way. Now, the rain continued uh, through last night as well. Um, and so, you know, it's not as though it's over or, you know, <laughs> now it, it seems like the weather's going to be easing off over the next couple of days. What do we know about the sort of relief and clean-up effort? Um, well, I think in part uh, the water levels are still rising, but mo- mostly they are receding from what I heard. I think Battle said that uh, yesterday evening as well or this morning and Meteor looks too. So uh, I would assume that now massive cleanup efforts are on the way. Um, like an, another friend of mine, he works at Creos. He was uh, immediately um, called in into the city to sort out the electricity and everything. So um, yeah, I reckon um, it will it will last a few days from from what I gathered until the water levels have have receded completely and before like the cleanup can be can be completed. But the government has the government triggered a state of natural disaster or national emergency. I thought I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they did yesterday. So they they declared it as an official natural disaster, and um, for that reason, they said we'll put aside. Uh, I think it's 50 million euros um, to you know help um, you know the, the the cleanup efforts and also to, to help to, to help people to you know um, you know gain gain back their livelihoods. Should mention that there is a hotline open uh, for anyone who's impacted by the floods, and that number is three five two four seven nine six four seven nine six. So four seven nine six four seven nine six, and that's open between eight and twelve and one and five. Uh, if you want to get on with that, um, you mentioned the, uh, the the claims for damages and things like that, and and who's that's who that will be available to. Is that mm-hmm. going to be with regard to infrastructure? Is it going to be for individuals? Is it going to be for businesses? Mm-hmm. I think I think it really depends. Like people can have different insurance coverages. 
um, insurance policies and um, I think a lot of like the, the regular policies now include some provisions for like water damage and nat natural disasters but I think it's partly trickier for business, business from what I've understood and overall insurance companies in Luxembourg have estimated that the damages could be up to 50 million euros mm. so I guess if, if you're in a situation it's best to like immediately check with your in insurance agency whether, um, whether you can claim any damages and what kind of damages you can claim. Right, let's move on to uh, COVID. <laughs> so yes, again, it's, yeah. yeah, we had a bit of a different theme, I guess. Now. Yeah, sure. Uh, so there's a couple of stories actually with regard to COVID this week. So uh, Luxembourg adopts new COVID rules for the summer break. Yeah, so um, yesterday morning, Parliament gathered um, a last time before recess properly. So they were going to recess for two months and then they voted in, um, um, for a new law that is coming into force, um, I think already maybe today or tomorrow, um, well, at least within the next few days, uh, with, uh, with new COVID restrictions, which are pretty much the same as the ones before, so they're not changing anything massively. Uh, the only thing that they're doing now is that if you stay somewhere, uh, I think beyond one, you have to um, have a proof of vaccination or of a negative test. Um, so if you go to some establishment, initially they wanted to do that at midnight, um, but uh, business owners, they were quite outraged by that because most businesses, as well cafes or, um, you know, they, pubs, they, they tend to close at, at, at 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. most of the time anyway, so that extra hour that would just cause confusion, be difficult to enforce. And, and, and all that jazz. So um, the, the government gave in to those criticisms. And the, the only other thing that they're now changing as well is that there will be, I think that they, they, they are increasing the fines a bit and there will be uh, tougher police checks because they had identified that uh, a lot of clusters could be retraced to like National Day celebrations and businesses not um, quite respecting the rules or enforcing them properly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they want to just like mitigate that. There was a, an interesting thing I saw there, which was private citizens will also need to use the COVID check system when getting together. So it's not just about going into a, a restaurant or a bar, but if you're having like a garden party or people around to your house or something like that, uh, any crowd larger than 10 people will yeah. need to be able to prove that they've been vaccinated, recovered or recently yeah. have been tested negative. So I guess that will be if you're having a, a big party and your neighbor says there's 20 people out the back garden yeah. and the police will come and check that you yeah. all need to be sure um, that you've got all your, your passes and everything like that. Now, should the pandemic worsen, should you know, see more cases uh, rising exponentially? And I think there was something like, how many cases? There was a lot of cases yesterday. We had because over 100 cases out of nine, 900 tests yesterday, yeah. like 130 or so. And yeah, like they, they skyrocketed, like I think two weeks ago. Now it's plateauing a bit, but it's still concerning with like the Delta variant being more transmissible and and people, you know, just returning to like some level of normalcy. Now um, that's, yeah, something, some, something to be watched. I think the hospital data is still fairly okay, mm -hmm. although there's a few more people in ICU units now. So I think that that's an important metric to be watched over the next few weeks. And yeah, Parliament also said that, you know, should the situation get worse, then they might come back and, and you know, vote in new restrictions, which mm -hmm. hopefully won't materialize. But uh, yeah, let's see how it goes. What's the story about uh, faulty masks? Yeah, so um, I think it was in a question parlementaire that uh, the government said that custom, custom officers, they um, had discovered around 2 million uh, face masks or, well, not only custom officers, but also like the, the ministry, um, uh, the health ministry itself, uh, that don't meet the quality criteria. 
Um, so, um, meaning that, you know, especially at the beginning, there was like this scramble for masks sure. and uh, there weren't enough available like globally and all sorts of masks were suddenly on the market and uh, partly maybe from dodgy sellers or from, from like good sellers, but s like selling like substandard masks mm -hmm. and all the stuff that, that, that don't meet like EU or national criteria. And yeah, so they identified those. Um, and um, for instance, Luxembourg also distributed, um, I think, around 50 face masks for free to citizens throughout the pandemic, per 50 per citizen. And uh, it seems like, um, yeah, some of their stock was, was faulty, but they, they had identified that. So um, hopefully those didn't get to the people. Okay, cool. Uh, then the, well, this is quite a serious story, as I said, calls for Corinne Khan to resign following care home deaths. Yeah. Yeah, so there was an, a very lively um, and interesting uh, debate happening in Parliament again with uh, the opposition putting forward a motion to make the family minister, Corinne Khan, resign over handling of like uh, care homes throughout the pandemic. And they were basically accusing her of not taking responsibility uh, because she um, is alleged to have given care homes a lot of leeway in how they conducted themselves throughout the pandemic without, without any binding rules. And whereas she argues that she would not be in a position to do so legally to um, decree binding rules, the opposition is saying, well, there is, look at those legal texts, you know, you should be able to do that, you should take responsibility, the health ministry did that. And basically, the situation uh, did was, was quite bad in care homes. I think during the first wave or so, 50% mm -hmm. uh, of the deaths were attributed to, to, to care facilities. And um, everything that went well, the opposition said, is due to the health ministry intervening. And yeah, there was a huge conflict as well. Uh, they sat between the health ministry and the families and how to handle the situation. So, um, so do, do care homes fall under her jurisdiction? Then? They is fall under her jurisdiction, yeah. So uh, that's a, yeah, the family minister is uh, theoretically in charge or should, should be in charge of, of care homes as well. But sure. yeah, she apparently didn't do her job. And this is already the second time that they're asking for a resignation. Um, so, but again, the government parties, they closed ranks and they said that, oh, you shouldn't, um, you, you shouldn't um, play party politics with, with uh, such a serious situation. And furthermore, you're attacking a, a female minister, which is also like, you know, the, the standard rhetoric that is sometimes employed to shield people in positions of power. And yeah, it, actually, what is important to mention is that this follows a report that Parliament commissioned into, into care homes uh, undertaken by the civil servant uh, Jean Novaringo, who previously investigated uh, um, the Grand Ducal Court as well over, um, you know, allegations of misbehaviour and uh, issued a damning report. And um, now the report that he wrote about a care home death in some ways is quite damning from my reading but it is also not imprecise it was very limited in scope and um, he didn't have much time to actually do research properly so and this is something that opposition politicians and the press they were also like keeping crit criticism uh, onto onto this report because it didn't go um, as deep as it should have um what, what, what's your feeling on how the, what this means for Karin Khan then is she will she be able to write this out um, I, I would think so uh, that at least uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the short term she'll be probably fine because uh, we are now having a government which really protects its own all the time regardless of which party they belong to. Mm -hmm. 
and it seems like maybe they've learned from you know the UK or the US that if you if you just don't ignore it, and just move ignore on. it, move on, and uh, nothing nothing will happen. But I do think that her reputation is has been massively damaged, and maybe in the uh, in the long term her political future would could, could be affected by that. And she's. I think in the last Politmonitor survey, she was also like one of the least popular politicians, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't see that changing in the near future. Interesting. Um, right, so we've done flooding, we've done COVID, and uh, now on to the uh, next usual story in Luxembourg, <laughs> which is property prices. Uh, empty plots show wealthy owners drive housing crisis. Yeah. Shock. Shock, yeah. <laughs> shock. Yeah, that's a really surprise, surprising insight that I, that I had there. But um, I think what, what is interesting here is that I found some uh, interesting research that was actually done um, into um, the, the, the housing crisis, which mm. keeps getting worse and which the pandemic didn't, didn't hinder from, you know, deteriorating at all. And um, what uh, I, so I had like an interesting conversation with uh, Antoine Pacou, a researcher at Lizer, who is also uh, at the Observatoire de l'Habitat, which is like a government-funded uh, body that looks at the housing situation in the country. And yeah, I know, and he provided me with very interesting data on uh, how much um, building land isn't being used and how much of it is concentrated within the wealthier within yeah the wealthiest ranks, so to speak. And um, he did a very interesting study on Dudelon saying that, you know, only 1% one, 1 of the people there own 18% 18, 18 of the land and so on and so forth, like a 5% own, I don't, I don't remember the exact sure. figure, but they own something similar, or like 30% maybe. So like it's, a, it's an interesting like pyramid um, of, of ownership and um, the more it gets to the top, the fewer people own, own property that isn't being built on or that is kept for speculation or maybe to um, you know give to their children or grandchildren and a major factor that he identified is also uh, that a lot of that wealth concentration is due also a, a huge shock I, I would assume is due to intergenerational wealth just um, sure you know and it partly goes back I think to the 19th century so it's the same families that that have been owning land for a while and a lot of these are perhaps also active in the real estate or the development business. So, um, you know, you have an, what, what, what uh, the Chambre des Salariés calls like an oligopoly where, yeah, the wealthiest, they control the market and they can, they can manipulate and distort it. Yeah, there was some, an interesting, some interesting figures in, in the story. So let's see, there was, uh, so there's enough land where they could easily build 50 to 80,000 housing units. Yeah. Uh, that's from a 2019 study. And then further on down, you mentioned that uh, a group of around 1,500 individuals holds 60% of the total buildable, buildable yeah. land, and that's in private owners. Yeah, exactly. With yeah. Uh, 23 people owning land worth at least 25 million yeah. each, which is a good chunk. Yeah. Uh, well, is there anything that can be, you know, is there some kind of way that the state can sort of do for, for spot buying of that land, or what happens? Yeah, yeah I mean, the, uh, this week as well, Parliament concluded a new pact logement which would allow uh, more state intervention to snap up uh, land that is being sold or houses that are being sold mm -hmm. and to make them uh, available affordable prices. Um, I think it lacks some teeth and it is down to like uh, council decisions as well so um, it's it's nothing that is going to be like mandatory mm -hmm. um, so we'll, we'll have to see how, how which effect that has and there is another discussion now happening of like renewing 
uh, the national tax on land retention, like the Grundsteuer, uh, um, as it's called in Luxembourgish. And um, for instance, the Council of Dickish has taken um, you know the issue into its own hands, and they they've raised it by uh, a factor of 20 now um, introduced this year and they, the, the mayor Claude Hagen has told me that he will likely see the first effects of that next year uh, but there's no national kind of strategy yet and um, and uh, that was supposed to be part of like a tax reform which has now been pushed back because of the pandemic so the next government will have to tackle that so um, yeah raising taxes on like land retention could be a possibility of encouraging people to uh, to um, give up their land or to sell it or to to make you like make some use of it that that would that would help the crisis. Yeah, well, I mean, to put that you know twenty times into real numbers. Sorry, there's someone building outside. Yeah. Uh, so this is a tax on empty building land. So up from 190 euros to 3,800 euros. It's a sizable uh, increase, and we'll hopefully make things move a little bit with that. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else you're working on this week that we should mention? Uh, yeah, so this morning uh, we published a story that um, that I incidentally have written uh, about uh, the uh, Luxembourg ex-boy Frank Schneider who's facing extradition to uh, uh, the, the US and um, I talked to the general prosecutor in Nancy because Frank Schneider was arrested in France. Mm -hmm. He sought over allegations of fraud in, um, in a massive global cryptocurrency scam called OneCoin. And uh, yeah, he's facing his extradition phase potentially already next week because then the judges will, um, uh, in Nancy, will go into their délibéré where they will yeah, basically uh, decide on the fate after, the, after he's been hurt. And yeah, no, I talked to uh, two international law professors, Steve Pierce in the UK, I think was well known, he advised UK government on EU, EU policy as well. Maybe not that successfully after all, mm -hmm. but... Um, and an, an Italian professor, and he was like saying, yeah, in theory, like Luxembourg could ha have the possibility to interfere in that extradition process between France and the US, but it seems like, I'd, um, and I talked to the prosecution here, uh, to the justice ministry here, I haven't heard back from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs yet, so, but it seems like Luxembourg is not interested in doing that, so they are, yeah, throwing him on the bus, but there are mechanisms in place through which a country, especially within the EU, can uh, protect his own citizens from being extradited to a non-EU country. Cool, interesting. Well, all those stories at uh, luxtimes.lu. Yannick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sam. And uh, we'll Pleasure see you again next time. Listen in Fridays to the new feature Times Like This on RCT Radio in partnership with Luxembourg Times. <laughs>